This is the Strength and Anger Podcast, part of the Berserker Strength Radio Network, featuring APF Illinois State Chairman Eric Stone, as well as AAPF AWPC Powerlifter Robert Bain. We are coming at you from 2XL Powerlifting in Lombard, Illinois, and you can find this podcast online on anchor.fm. All right, here we are, episode 55 of the Strength Anger Podcast, and a special guest host with me today is my wife, Jackie Stone. Um, we thought this is a tribute to Ernie Franz. Uh, Jackie was there when we both trained at Franz together. Um, do you prefer Ms. Stone or Mrs. Eric D. Stone? You're poking the bear on that one. You're, you're, can, can you hear... An eye roll on the podcast, or is this the part where I have to tell you that my eyes are rolling? I, I'll, go with, I'll go with Ms. Stone. Okay, very good, very good. Um, now, you were on the podcast before on our Women in Powerlifting episode, but maybe just give like a 30-second spiel on, other than being Eric Stone's loudmouth wife, there's a joke to that, um, anything else about yourself? Uh, let's see. A little bit about myself. I got into powerlifting somewhere around the 2002-2003 year time frame. Um, got invited down um, by Eric Marocher to uh, lift at the high school gym at the time. This is pre-Monster Garage. Um, I didn't do my first meet until after I had met uh, Eric uh, Stone, I should say. And um, Eric finally got me to do a meet a couple years later. Um, and that was super fun. I enjoy powerlifting, and it's definitely become a big part of our life, and I'm really grateful for it. And you, what do you do for a living? I Jaqueline? currently am a high school administrator in the south suburbs of Chicago, um, and I pride myself on being a math teacher, and then I'm a mom of two. That's important, too. Okay, very good. Um, loose ends from past episodes. Um, we'll probably tie up those next week when I'm back with Mr. Bain, but... Mm-hmm. We got a lot of positive feedback on our PED episode. Um, everybody likes to hear about drugs, apparently. Apparently. Um, but Bade and I will discuss. We actually got probably more feedback on that episode than any we have for a number of months. A uh, number of months, excuse me. So, But we'll, we'll touch back on that with Mr. Bain. Um, other than that, Jackie, what's going on? Uh, all kinds of things. It seems like the world is starting to try to get back to some kind of normal. And uh, with that, we are too. We have a full list of meets up. And one of those that I would love to highlight is the women's meet. Um, we're pretty sure that this is the only uh, meet for women run by entirely women, um, which is really awesome. Everything from spotters and loaders to all of the judges to the table staff, everybody is a woman in this event, and it's super fun. So if you are interested in that, it's going to be June 5th. And, yeah, whether you want to lift or if you want to work it, if you are a female and would like to help work, you are more than welcome to let us know about that. Uh, How about Eric? What's going on with you? Well, we are working on details for AWPC Worlds, which will be back here in Lombard, most likely at the at the gym. Um, Just with everything going on with COVID still, it's it's still going to be challenging to get space in, uh, you know, hotels. Um, We are going to set up with the same hotel we did for Worlds last year um, nearby the Crown Plaza, which is actually literally less than a mile away from 2XL. But I'll hopefully have details on that soon. We've been working on that um, quite a bit. 
You've probably seen some of our posts on pressing the pieces together. We have a pretty, pretty stacked lineup of uh, featured lifters, a lot of females. Um, I, and looking at it, it looks like we plausibly have three females that could bench over 500 pounds. Which, That's really impressive. Which I think would be a first. For three, yeah. I remember the first 500. Do you know who the first 500 female bench presser was? I believe that was Becca Swanson. I believe so. It was pretty awesome. I remember seeing that. So outstanding. It's really awesome to see like um, women in the sport nowadays. We'll probably touch on it a little bit later when we talk about Ernie because there's a lot of history there. But that's super exciting. I'm excited for um, that event in general. It's just a really nice event uh, where we get to raise money. Yeah. Um, other than that, Jaqueline, what is bullshit? Ooh, I had to think about this one. I'm going to go with um, an example from the last couple of days. So we just had the inauguration, and what is bullshit is profiting off of others without giving their due. And so the example that um, came up of this idea was um, at the inauguration, Amanda Gorman um, was capturing the essence of um, basically what it's been uh, an American now. And it really spoke to you know, having hope and really spoke to my soul. Um, she was a poor, or she's the poet laureate that spoke at the inauguration. And um, at this inauguration, it was the first female and first African American vice president. So that's super exciting. And you know, there's all this hope in the air. There's um, just it really touched a lot of people's hearts. And unfortunately there were people that um, began to start to like make money off of what she basically gave to us in America um, on a website called Teachers Pay Teachers. Within hours, people had started putting up um, lesson plans. If you don't know what Teachers Pay Teachers is, it's a website devoted to teachers um, putting up their lesson plans and paying other people so that way um, they can make money off of their basically intellectual property. Um, the reason why I disagreed with this or why I don't think that it's right is that, you know, the money that the money that um, people were making off of these lesson plans, nothing was going back to the person that actually created this poetry because, you know, it's not, um, I'm sure that like it was breaking like copyright laws and all kinds of things. And, and I just, I don't know, it, it touched me in a wrong place because I think that, you know, if somebody puts something beautiful into the world like that, um, either put it out in, like, for free as well um, or give back to the person that you're taking their intellectual property from, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting. I was obviously not familiar with that website, but I wouldn't have had a look at it. Um, I don't want to go too much into uh, some of my views on said things. Um, I, I like everything you said, but Teachers Pay Teachers, I thought it was ironic, some of the things highlighted at the top of their website, which I would say maybe aim towards the uh, opposite of free market capitalism, and yet their entire website is basically the epitome of free market capitalism. It's basically people putting their information on a website and selling directly to consumers. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was ironic that some of their lesson plans that were highlighted were basically the opposite of free market capitalism, um, but yet that is exactly what they're doing on their website. Yeah, I, I mean, I could probably go on and on about this website in general because 
Um, people will find blog posts by other teachers and post them as their own lesson plan and then make money off of something that wasn't even their idea. Um, and I, I, I don't know, I just have a problem with that. I'm not just saying that like teachers shouldn't be able to make money off of their intellectual property. Definitely. I mean, if it's your idea, great. Um, but some of the lesson plans that were related to this particular poem um, were just, it, it was just like the, uh, the, 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 the words of the poem. It wasn't even any kind of thing that you would actually do with your class. And no commentary or anything. Yeah, it was just like, I, I was astounded. And it was within like hours this stuff was up. Mm. And it's just like, come on. Like, you know, and what really goes into a good lesson plan? But I'm not going to go there. So, because I, I, I could, like I said, I could probably keep going. But again, mm. um, and there's other examples. Like, I think that if you have an idea and it's your own idea, and, like, somebody copies that, that they should, you know, give you your props for that. So yeah, I agree. How about, uh, Eric, what is bullshit? Well, the Chicago Bears are bullshit. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Uh, Jaqueline is not a Bears fan. <laughs> you uh, don't say. Unfortunately, I married into a, a Packers family. Unfortunately. Uh, no, that's uh, the most fortunate thing that's happened to you in a long time. Okay. Well... <laughs> Mr. Trubisky is a is a flop. Mm -hmm. um, everybody should be fired. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the only reason why the coach and GM are sticking around is because they've got two years left in their contract, and mm -hmm. they just don't want to eat two years of contract. So the Bears are bullshit. Um, I don't want to talk too much more about it because it makes me angry. It's but, okay. Uh, but if they're going to be bullshit, this is the year to be bullshit. So I guess. Um, yeah. So I think we're bringing back a new segment that you haven't done in a little bit, and these uh, are the – Stone, or did you do one last week? No, we didn't do one last okay. week. Uh, yeah, we're, we've done it a couple times. We did not do one last week because I couldn't come up with one. But in the course of my week, I actually came up with a couple of good ones. So we're actually going to go all the way back. Um, I thought this would be an interesting one to go through since you were around for this, Jackie. Go to the Wayback um, Machine. Tales from Velocity. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you go back to our maybe first episode, um, I talk about some of my job history. And the first place I worked at of college was Velocity Sports Performance which was a, you know, basically a youth sports training facility. Great place. We ran powerlifting meets there. That's where Team Stone started. Mm -hmm. um, we had some basically douchebag independent contractor renters out of this place. One of them was the baseball instructor, Sean Sanderson, who was a grade A scumbag and douchebag. Mm, yeah. um, I could tell a lot of stories about Sean, but yeah. I'm going to tell probably the best one. Yeah. So... Mm -hmm. Just to give you uh, some context, Sean was uh, a hitting instructor, and obviously a good one because he was, I would say, uh, you know, a, a challenge to work with from a client perspective um, because he'd had three DUIs, and so he had no car or license, <laughs> and so often his clients had to pick him up. Mm -hmm. He was always behind on his schedule. Like, he was always, like, a half hour behind. Um, my boss at the time, who I actually really liked working for, um, and I think he just got in a bad financial bind with the Velocity business model. I could do a whole podcast on that. Uh, but you know, my boss wasn't great at like just asking people for money, which if you're in business, like it, it's just, he, he just wasn't. And I was young, so I wasn't necessarily good at it either. But it got to the point where Sean was always behind on his rent mm -hmm. um, paying. He was supposed to pay an hourly rate for the batting cage. And so literally when Sean would leave, especially on Saturdays when the team would squat, because I would be the only one there, I would literally just say to Sean, Sean, do you have any cash on you? Like, give me whatever cash you have on you right now, <laughs> and I will give that to Dale. And then he's like, well, here you go. Here's 
25 from last Thursday, and here's another 50 from last, you know, last Monday, and from a couple days ago, here's this, and then I'll be up to date with two weeks ago. And I'm like, whatever. You and Dale figure out, Dale was the owner, you and Dale figure out your accounting system. I will just collect the cash, put it in an envelope, and put it on Dale's desk. So, um, again, Sean had no driver's license. He'd had three DUIs. Mm. Um, he had no car. Um, there was another uh, independent contractor renter, Tom Allen, who mm-hmm. I, I could do another stone star on him because he was literally the Bobby Knight of youth basketball. Yes. Um, but uh, nonetheless, Sean, baseball instructor, um, don't, let, don't ever let your daughter date a baseball player. Very bad. <laughs> very bad. Very, very terrible. Or maybe very good. Uh, <laughs> um, Sean borrowed Tom Allen's car quote to go to Wendy's and Wendy's was literally across the street from Velocity like like turn the corner it's there um instead of being at Wendy's Sean was like five miles away like in like uh I want to say like Oak Lawn which is a good actually that's like 30 minutes away from Willowbrook paying a bill got in it wrecked the car Mm -hmm. wrecked Tom Allen the basketball instructor's car um and of course had no license and of course had no insurance why Tom Allen let Sean borrow his car, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, as the story progresses, you know, uh, Sean had not paid Tom, you know, because he had no money and he had no insurance, just like he wasn't paying Dale for renting the facility. And so innocently, one day I was just cleaning, you know, uh, up equipment before we had our athletes come in. Um, we kind of dealt on like 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. schedule during the school year. And I was just chuckling to myself as Tom Allen was asking Sean for the money that he owed him. And then, you know, Sean looks at me and says, are you, what the, what the F are you laughing or what the fuck are you laughing at? And I said, I'm laughing at you. <laughs> and him and I started jawing at each other. And then kind of out of nowhere, my direct instructor, uh, my direct superior, um, the director of training there, Mike Scorp, my old boss, just literally in wrestling terms, like cut a promo on Sean Sanderson how you're a fucking asshole and you don't pay anybody and you crash people's cars. Don't fucking disrespect my coaches. Get the fuck out of here. And it was just like, just like months of pent up anger exploded onto Sean Sanderson. What's crazy is that he used to be really pretty professional, especially when you think of some of the cast of characters that were in there. And so for him to go crazy on Sean like that is yeah, it, just I think, it's out of character. I think just Mike had had enough, and yeah. Sean was such a douchebag. Um, I will tell you, that, that's a pretty good story, but my Tom Allen story is actually better. Um, I will save that for next week. Um, let, let's move on to our Palooza throwback. throwback. Um, we're going to go to March of 1996, and there's a specific reason we're going back to this issue. Um, but, uh, Jackie, mm-hmm. what were you doing in March of 1996? Oh, let's see. 1996 would have been during my junior year. So, therefore, I just turned 17 because I'm a March baby. And I was probably getting ready to um, take that young ACT. Uh, did pretty well on that ACT. I won't put my score out there because then my husband will talk about his score and he did better than me, but we'll just leave that in the but past. No, no, <laughs> nobody cares about your ACT score. <laughs> Just like nobody cares about your SAT score. No, no. Outside of when you go to college. 
Oh, but you love to just point it up. That's okay. That's okay. I'm proud of you, babe. Um, nobody, nobody cares. And uh, in that time of year, March is always fun because uh, that's when we do Snowball One, which is one of my favorite events. It's one of the things that I was involved in high school, and then I continue to be involved in after I graduated. And so, I don't know. I probably did something like 40 snowballs. And Get, so In a quick elevator uh, speech, tell people what snowball is. Snowball is teens helping other teens make healthy life decisions. So you know how you talked all last week about PEDs and doing drugs? Yeah, we don't talk about doing drugs. You're supposed to say no to drugs, which I know is probably not going to get me a lot of followers, but that's okay. Um, but it's really fun. I, I love the program because... Um, and it also talks about practicing safe sex and you know depression and family interactions and a lot of teen mental health gosh if there was ever a time period when we could use a snowball man right now when we're allowed to would certainly be a time huh definitely because you know it's all about getting into like who you are as a person and um gave me great leadership skills and uh, and friends the you know friends that i have even today are from that program and, so. and it's like a weekend like yeah. retreat weekend like stay overnight retreat basically typically yeah and you get to pair up with, um, there's adult co-facilitators, so I got to meet, that's how I had some really good adult leadership or role models in my life in high school, which it's a really challenging age to be a role model for um, a young adult, and so that was really awesome. And that particular snowball, I remember, was super fun, so that was fun. How about you? What were you doing in March of 1996, Eric? Well, I would have just turned 13 uh, the month prior. Um, I would have been in seventh grade. Oh, wow. Um, at that time, um, I was, yes, still playing soccer. Um, I think I played soccer, basketball. I don't know if they did track at middle school or not, but if they did, I probably did track as well. I basically just did a sport every season just because something to do. Um, hey, Eric. Nobody cares about soccer. <laughs> uh, true, but uh, that the soccer did lead me to football. So, um on the cover of March 1996 was the top 20 mm. issue, and we had three individuals on there. Um, we had teenage champ James Drake, who I am just taking a stab at is probably the son of Martin Drake, who was an AAU meet director. Um, and looking it up on the top 20 list, it looks like James, um, he was number eight in the 148 squat with a 470 squat number eight in the deadlift with a 480 squat and number 11 with an 1170 pound total he was also in there at 165 he was number 20 in the squat um number 19 in the deadlift and number 18 in the total with a 1200 pound total um his best lifts according to open powerlifting um which were those ranks lifts was a 473 squat a 242 bench and a 485-pound deadlift, and those were all at 165 in single ply um, in the AAU, which we actually will talk about a little bit later. Um, doesn't look like he's competed since 1996, so uh -oh. this was this was about it for him. But uh, interesting, I'm sure Martin Drake was someone who posted a lot on the message boards back in the day. Um, it seemed like AAU meet directors just fucking just spammed those message boards. Um, we had someone who I've never heard. I know I never heard of James Drake, although I knew the last name, but I've never heard of women's phenom, quote, Deborah Ernie. Um, she had no open powerlifting page. And, you know, one of the interesting things I was thinking about open powerlifting, because I looked you up, Jackie, mm -hmm. um, they do not have your first couple meets 
listed. And I, A, they were a long time ago. Uh, I mean, like, not that long, but I mean, they were before, you know, things were always posted online. Um, but you had a couple meets in Ohio and Michigan, and I believe at that time you were still Jackie Evan. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the challenges of tracking women um, that are more likely to change their name. And who knows if Deborah Ernie, you know, who knows if those results ever got submitted or haven't been tracked, but, you know, maybe she's competed again. Maybe she got married, changed her name. And what about a female that changes their name, then gets divorced, or maybe gets married to someone else and has another name change? Whew, tracking that. Um, it's funny, I checked the Eric Stone open powerlifting, and there was another Eric Stone on there from Florida um, who was like in his 50s, and it was like everything else was me, and then we had this other Eric Stone. So, you know, it's very hard to track when, you know, it, you're trying to use algorithms and downloading data, even though we have Jem Lucas, who I said I would mention her name, Jem Lu- Jem Lucas, Jem Lucas, multiple times because I f- couldn't remember her last name in one of the last episodes from Relentless, our friend. Yeah, she's super fun and... She, I, I'm sure it was all in a little bit of jest. Oh, of course. She, I don't think she actually wanted me to say her name three times like I did, but she... I mean, uh, we could say it again for good measure. Jem. Yeah. Jem Lucas. Um, we, uh, she compiles the data, I think, for open powerlifting for uh, most of the WPC meets. And it, it's kind of... I mean, open powerlifting, I don't believe, monetizes at least the website itself. And they certainly could, because I mean, because Powerlifting Watch did. Um, so, I mean, they, I think they are, it's not perfect. Um, but the, you know, they're slowly trying to compile data and, you know, a lot of these meets were literally only in powerlifting USA. And I can tell you because I found a website with basically every powerlifting USA, like scanned as a PDF. And when you scan an old magazine, it's going to be very difficult to search that. It's not like you can just dump it into a computer. Um, nonetheless. Well, and like, even if you use the results of today, there's not like a standard format. And so trying to bring that in is hard. And if you think about like when you have people that are double entered and they have like, you know, one, two, three after that name, then it uh, won't that, match exactly. There's yeah. so much that goes into data. And well, I, what about if you use somebody's full name, James versus Jim, or, you know, given name, like Jackie versus Jacqueline, Jacqueline mm-hmm. which is actually what you are in open powerlifting. Yeah. So uh, Deborah in the top 20 list, I found her. She had a number two squat, and this was all at 165. She had a 485 squat, mm. a 391 bench, which was number one, a 441 deadlift, number six, and the number one total. And she was up by quite a bit with a 1311 pound total at 165. The 165 part makes that and really impressive. At this time, it probably, I don't know if it would have been multi or single ply. Because again, there wasn't open powerlifting. There was multi ply by uh, 95, 96. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had the man himself, uh-huh. Ernie Franz. Um, and it looks, I believe, I'm not sure because it wasn't 100% clear. Um, it looks like this was from 1996 WPC Worlds, which was in Ohio. Um, Ernie would have been 61 at the time of this issue uh, at that meet, um, mostly at that meet. Uh, but we, we looked at uh, the top 20 list from this issue. At 220, he had a 821 squat, which was number two in the Masters, uh, a 336 bench. At this time, he had a lot of wrist and shoulder problems, so bench was not his strength. A 661 deadlift, which was number six, and an 1802 total. Um, and that was his best squat i believe or no he had done um an 826 squat back at age 50 walked out single ply and that that is available on the web eric marosher posted it um it was from the from one of the hawaii record breakers 
Um, he did that at age 50. He did this at age 61. Wow. And he was number two in the squat, number three in the total at age 61. Important to note that the master's list is anyone over the age of 40. The difference between a 40-year-old and a 60-year-old, I mean, a lot of lifters hit their best lifts in their 40s. And Ernie was 61 at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, Ernie gets a lot of credit for, you know, his, his gym, his coaching um, his running of meets, his starting of the APFWPC, but he was an incredibly impressive lifter for a, for a lot of years. Um, and it's interesting, when I was looking at open powerlifting, um, he took second place at 50 at the Hawaii Invitational in 1980, I want to say, oh, I should have written that down. I want to say 1982. Um, but then it looked like six days later he competed again um, at the Nissan Invitational. I wonder if they got the year wrong. I mean, I was going to message them on that, but it looked like he had two meets a week apart, which didn't make any sense. So I'm going to guess that they just got the year wrong. But nonetheless, he took, you know, second place. And the Hawaii Invitation, we've talked about a little bit, Gus Rethwish's baby. That was kind of like the, the WPO of its time. Um, you know, it had Budweiser at one point as a sponsor. It was actually giving out prize money. I, I believe it apparently was on TV. I wish I could get, actually, Gus would be a good person to have on to talk about that because that was some big meets at the time. Um, and Ernie did well. I mean, again, even at 50 years old, he was second place among all the big boys. Um, the top 20 lists, we, we've talked about this before with Mr. Bain. Um, every month in Powerlifting USA, if we hadn't mentioned this, there was a top 100 list for each weight class. Men, women, all put together. I mean, if the women could make the top 100 list for that weight class, which happened a lot of times in the lighter weight classes. But yearly, once a year, they would do a top 20 list for teenagers, for masters, and for women, for all, the, for all weight classes. Um, instead of a top 100, they did top 20. And it, it's important to note that at, in this era, even in the 90s, um, you know, female participation was much less than it is now. I mean, Jack, you can speak to it even in the, when you started in the, the early 2000s. I mean, it, it's nothing like it is now. Yeah, we went to a world competition, and at that world competition, there were four women competing versus, you know, all the men that were there. And now, like, we have, you know, women that will have their own day. So it's it's Or coming. their own meet. It, that is true. Um, June 5th, did we mention that? Yeah, we, <laughs> we did mention June 5th, the Women's Empowerment Meet. Or you, you talked about, I don't know if you mentioned the date, but um, yeah, June 5th, the Women's Empowerment Meet, the third year running. It's the, uh, I, it's not the, it's not the first Women's Only Meet by far. I mean, no. there's been Women's Only Meet going back to the, we talked about it in previous episodes with uh, Judy Gedney and the Women's Committee of the USPF in the early 80s. Um, and she actually even thought about forming her own organization separate from the USPF, but... Well, and Laura has that awesome pro-am that people love, Yes, so. yeah, she talked about that in our interview with her, excellent interview, but I, I think to have a meet um, that you have done and we have done together that, you know, has not just female lifters, but female staff, mm-hmm. um, judges, spotters, litters, table help. Now we have a couple janitors, male jan- janitors and Eric Stone and Howard Pendros hanging around, but... Um, we, we truly are not doing the work that's, uh, that's left to the ladies at that meet. Um, the top 25 all-time strongest deadlift in total. I thought this was an interesting list. Herb Glossbrenner freaking loves lists. The dude just puts out list after list. I mean, for tons of years. Um, so I'll just give a couple highlights. Um, the top women's deadlift, and this is as of 96, was Dawn Reschel. Ironic because the Reschel formula was what we used to use in the APF prior to now the Glossbrenner formula, 
Um, and she had a 604 deadlift. Don Reschel was Greg Reschel, who was one-time APF president. On um, the total, we have Don Reschel top with 1564. Of note, our friend uh, Maris Sternberg, who we lifted with at Franz Gym with a 1262 total. And this is just all-time, regardless of weight class. Um, it, it, you know, it didn't matter the weight class there at that time. Um, she's down there. Eh, I'm going to say... He did top 25. I'm going to say she's probably like 17, 18 without out counting. Um, and the men's deadlift, we had Gary Heisey, Heisley, who we talked about in our Fred Clary interview with a 925 deadlift, which finally Gary Frank broke in the 2000s. And then, of course, um, our, uh, our, our British big lifter who had kidney failure. Why can't I think of his name? Uh, Andy Bolton. <laughs> Andy Bolton, uh, who then was the first to deadlift 1,000 in a powerlifting meet. Um, and uh, we'll talk about this again later in the issue, but Anthony Clark with the top total, 2460. Um, at this time, Dave Passanella, uh, 2458. Odie Wilson, 2430. Um, John Ware, 2427. Bill Kazmaier, 2425. Ed Cohn, 2408. Doug Furness, 2403. Dan Reinhout. 2391. A lot of these were done in the 80s. It's interesting. The only one that was done in the 90s of that list, Ed Cohn's, mm-hmm. um, was done in 91, but this is a 96 issue. Anthony Clark had been done in 93. Well, we're going to touch back to Anthony Clark later. Um, but uh, that's uh, Herb Glassbender's top 25, and he just freaking loves lists. Uh, we have a multi year training system article by Louis Simmons of Westside Barbara. Um, and his articles are always so funny. You know, it, it's it, he does talk about the topic, but like literally the article is mostly just Louie talking about Kenny Patterson's numbers and the meets he did and the progression of his bench from a 135 bench when he enters gym at 15 to as an adult, a 700 pound bench. Um, I did think he, you know, what one thing I, I liked from the article that I pulled out, you kind of really have to like dig deep into Louie's articles because he'll just talk about all these old meets and numbers. He doesn't talk about things linearly. That's not the way his mind works. Um, I think that's true of a couple of people. Like, I mean, we'll talk about Ernie later, but sometimes he would kind of be roundabout about things oh, as well. So <laughs> Those two are actually more alike than dislike, even mm. though their training philosophies were vastly different. Mm-hmm. Um, but he talked about having your training priorities in the long term. You know, and that in the long term, the things that Kenny needed to do, Kenny Patterson, um, to bring his bench up was, you know, continuing to build his body weight, continuing to build his work capacity, continue to work on his upper back and lats. Those are not necessarily direct bench things, but, you know, increasing his caloric intake, increasing his, you know, bodybuilding style work to bring his body weight, um, decreasing, you know, rest between sets on his speed work. Um, doing extra workouts um, for his increased work capacity. And then, you know, a high emphasis on upper back and lats, which is something I think now is probably more so thought of as a bench builder. But I think, you know, when you think about in the 90s and the the big benchers were probably in your commercial gyms and elsewhere probably thinking, yeah, the most important thing is my pecs and my delts and my triceps. Um, Louie would definitely focus on the triceps for shirted benchers like Kenny. But I think probably as important is that upper back lat, um, which is going to take more time to build kind of that foundation to bench off of. Um, there was, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff in this article on, you know, we were talking about this tonight in our training session. There's always been politics and powerlifting. Um, this issue was no exception. 
uh, we have a letter from the AAU Powerlifting Committee. At that time, Al Siegel was the national chairman. Um, Al would later go on to form the ADAU, the Anti-Drug Athletes United, um, Al has since passed. He was formerly the ADFPA president. If all these letters are confusing, go back to our Alphabet Soup Powerlifting episode. But we'll, we're going to talk more on this. Um, and we talked about, I think, in our USPF uh, lawsuit issue, we talked about some of the history of the federations. Um, powerlifting started in the AAU, but it, after the, uh, oh, I forget the act, but after, you know, the act that split up the AAU from the uh, Olympic uh, Committee, um, powerlifting left the AAU, formed the USPF. Um, but this is the first mention that I saw of a raw division was in this AAU. And it looks like the AAU restarted powerlifting around 1995 and started with a raw division, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, at that time, they put powerlifting as part of the AAU Junior Olympics, which was for uh, mostly teenagers and powerlifting it was up to age 23. Um, I did that in 2003, and I would have been 20 at the time. I did the AAU Junior Olympics in Detroit at Ford Field. Um, that and Chimerica Park were the only nice-looking buildings in the entire city of Detroit. Be nice. Um, I, that is being nice. <laughs> um, so just interesting that, you know, and Al Siegel would then go leave the AAU to form the ADAU after, you know, kind of restarting AAU powerlifting. Um, there was a letter from I, this Now, this sent me down a big rabbit hole. There was a letter from IPA Pennsylvania State Chairman Carl Seeker, who I think is still around powerlifting and making awards. Um, and he was responding to an article from Dr. Ken Lester on in the February 96 issue. Um, on the rule change in the squat, and uh, he says, Seeker, he, pronouns pal, says IPA's motto is lifters for lifters. He mentions that if we are only concerned with numbers that, you know, we would have accepted Anthony Clark's 1,100-pound squat that he missed at the first-ever IPA Senior Nationals in 1995. Um, Anthony Clark did a 25-31 total, which was not included on the uh, Herb Glassbender list, and... Uh, he did a 1,031 squat, a 770 bench, missed 800, and a 730 deadlift. And again, he missed an 1,100-pound squat, which, if successful, would have been, you know, a, the first 1,100-pound squat by years because it wasn't until the 2000s in the WPO um, with Steve Goggins that we would actually see an 1,100-pound squat. Um, so I, w I looked back at that February 96 issue. Um, apparently, Anthony Clark got two whites on his 1,100-pound squat, um, but it was later turned down. What? because the spotter, a spotter was apparently touching the bar. Um, apparently, Anthony Clark himself requested the lift be disallowed. Uh. So the interesting part about this is, and I, I think we've talked about this before, but the IPA was started by Lynn and John Schaefer, who I'm not familiar with. Uh, the 95 IPA Nationals were hosted by Ellen and Mark Chalet. And Mark mm -hmm. Chalet is the guy I would know as the IPA president up until I think even current. Um, and if you asked Ernie Franz, <laughs> Mark Chalet and company left the APF, mm. and they were originally APF people mm -hmm. due to Mark Chalet not being able to squat get uh, get a squat passed in the APF. And uh, the the moniker of the IPA in APF circles was always high PA or I'll pass anything. Mm -hmm. um, I think didn't Karen mention that in his interview? He might have dropped a couple of those. Uh, he was famous for. <laughs> dropping shade Karen's on great for dropping you know little nuggets of yes. uh, humor yep um and there was a lot to unpack in this article from dr ken um 
uh, it's almost worth going back in this th that issue with Bain and I and, and going back to a Palooza throwback and really digging into the article. But apparently Ken, Dr. Ken, mm -hmm. um, was the head judge for that Anthony Clark 1,100-pound squat. He goes a lot of twists and turns on things. Um, apparently at this time when the IPA started, the rules that were different from your average powerlifting organization was that the head judge was disallowed from judging depth per the IPA rulebook. And in the APF, it's encouraged, it's not disallowed, but it's encouraged not to judge depth if it's not blatant. So if it's close, you favor the lifter if that, you don't know. Yeah, that blatant thing is, is kind of challenging sometimes depending on um, where you're at. And I know, you know, Keith Early would said, I always side with the lifter. Um, and I think that that's the good way to lean from the front because... It's hard to see, especially really with big tricky. guys. Mm -hmm. um, but that was a rule. You were not allowed to judge depth. So you, uh, as long as you stood up with the weight, and the IPA also doesn't have a squat command. So basically, if you get a rack command in the IPA, you already got one white at this time. Um, the IPA depth rule read differently, and this is something I would probably have to do a little bit more research to maybe try to find their old rule book in the Wayback Machine, if it exists. But it was something like um, you have to get the hip joint below the knee joint versus the average powerlifting rulebook reads that you have to get the top surface of the thigh where it meets the hip below the top surface of the knee. Um, and that's the same way it reads in basically every powerlifting federation. Um, because of the way the rule was written, and from what was told, depth was judged very generously in the IPA when they started, um, there was a time when Powerlifting USA disallowed IPA lifts from the top 100 lift lists. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, when, I had, when I got into the sport in the 2000s, I kind of heard this story. And when I checked the rule book, at least by then, at some point, the IPA eventually changed their rules to match those of other federations. Uh, however, the prevailing wisdom, I'm not saying it is because I've actually never been to an IPA meet. Mr. Bain has now. Mm -hmm. um, but the prevailing wisdom was that the implementation of their depth calling was fairly similar to this time period. Um, there was an odd letter from the editor-in-chief of Powerlifting USA, Mike Lambert. Um, he apparently requested the directory of the USPF from then president of the USPF, Peter Thorne, who would later go on to work for Inter-Advanced Designs. Um, I'm not sure why Lambert thought he was due to get the directory of a private organization it, 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 he alluded to something about like if there's going to be an election there needs to be you know open there needs to be you know uh, non-collusion or openness i don't know it was very weird it's a weird article um I, I actually started after that doing a little bit more research on the whole controversy of the uspf eventually then getting kicked out of the ipf and the then ADFPA, now USAPL, taking their place as the IPF affiliate. Um, but we will talk about that in another episode. Um, and finally, just another little nugget was that there was the KB bench press shirts. Um, I've never heard of them. They apparently had a zipper in the back. Nice. Um, it must have been the precursor to the current open back or stretchy back bench shirts of today. Um, so some interesting stuff all the way back from 96. So let's let's go into our kind of topic at hand of the day. Um, you know, basically, Jackie, and the reason I wanted to have you on was to just basically have you and I talk about our time with Ernie Franz and talk about our memories and talk about our experiences at Franz Gym. Um, I think I take for granted what we experienced there. And 
um, the time we spent with Ernie. And I, I, I think I just assume most people know who Ernie Franz is and what he did and what he was about. Um, but not everyone does, especially lifters that came in the sport in the last 10 years. Um, but before we go into that, let's give a toast to the late, great Ernie Franz. Cheers to Ernie. So I met Ernie Franz in 2000 when I did my first meet. Um, prior to that meet, I had actually read the rule book, unlike some of you lifters. Um, I actually read the rule book. I still have it saved on my computer from all the way back in 2000 um, and saw that I needed a one-piece lifting suit. So um, I went to Franz's gym and I asked about a squat suit. Ernie told me he could give me a canvas suit that would I'd have to put 100 pounds over my current max to reach parallel, to which I said, well, maybe let's wait a little bit on that, Ernie. Um, so he gave me a double, double ply canvas or a double ply polyester suit. Um, I remember now APF secretary, Amy Jackson, um, you know, getting my measurements and giving me one and said, well, this will be a quote loose one. I remember struggling in like some back room there at Franz gym. And it took me like 45 minutes to get into it. And I said, this is loose. <laughs> it was cause I didn't know how to put it on. Mm -hmm. Um, but I remember wearing that for my first couple meets. Um, a little bit later, I would then go back and get a denim bench shirt, and Ernie had Tex take me down in the basement and show me how to use it, which is very strange since Tex really didn't lift. No. I don't think he lifted at all. No, no. Uh, I liked Tex a lot, though. Yeah. We talked about Tex in a previous Stone story. Um, but, you know, my first meet experience was that 2000 APF Illinois State meet. I remember Ernie giving the rules meeting and now knowing what should be said in the rules meeting, he really didn't talk about things that you should talk about in the rules meeting. <laughs> he talked about things like having your coach call your numbers and, you know, I don't know what, not bad things, but more like things that Ernie would like to talk about, you know, suggestions rather than like strictly going through the rules. Um, Ernie, that probably wasn't Ernie's best role in, in giving the strict rules meeting. Um, uh, I ran in, and and I, I, I didn't do another meet. I did the 2000 state meet, and then I did 2000 Teenage Nationals, which was also in Aurora. Then I hurt my back doing a high-frequency, high-volume program on my own, stupidly. And so I didn't do another meet until 2002. Um, and I remember er running into Ernie again at uh, 2002 AWPC Worlds. He, I think Ernie was at 2002 AAPF Nationals in Pensacola, um, which was run by Les Kramer, also known as Les Scammer who had uh, pee on a stick drug tests that were thrown in the garbage that he said were like, uh, what's those things that you stick in water or whatever in science? Um, like a litmus test? Yes. He said it was like a litmus test, kind of urinalysis, which doesn't exist. He just had people pee on a stick and threw it in the garbage and kept all the money for the drug testing. Hence why he was kicked out of the AAPF. Um, but I, I really ran into Ernie Gunn at, 2002 AWPC Worlds, which was in Marietta, Georgia, um, I forgot my singlet, um, and I knew Ernie was someone of importance even then, so I, and, and that he might be able to help me, and he graciously found someone else at the meet that lent me their, like, looser squat suit for me to wear on bench. Um, he handed off to me on the bench because I had nobody there to help me except for my dad, um, and I think this is kind of where our friendship kind of began, because he had seen me before at meets. But now here I was, you know, I, he maybe kind of saw me at Nationals, but now here I'm at Worlds. I've been lifting for a couple years. You know, he and I chatted. He helped me, you know, 
with some suggestions on my form and on calling technique. I also remember running into Dick Zenzen at that meet. Um, but that's kind of where I think our friendship began. But that's, that's when I first met Ernie. Yeah, I think the fir- I'm pretty sure that the first time I officially met Ernie was the first time that I went to go and train at Ron's gym. Um, prior to that, I had been lifting at um, the high school. Marosha got a new job, and then uh, things were kind of – we were kind of working out at Rich East, and then we were kind of working out at a big box gym and, you know, just kind of feeling things out. Um, and eventually Marosha was like – why don't you guys just go um, lift out an Aurora at Franz Gym? It's funny, like, when I was thinking about this, because, Eric, you're from Aurora, and you would drive all the way down to Park Forest to lift with us. Well, to be fair, <laughs> at that time, I was going to Elmhurst College. True. But, but in, in looking back, I think one of my regrets is that as a high schooler, Franz Gym was right there. I mean, yeah. I, literally, like, if there was one thing, I, you know, I don't like to live in the past and live in regrets, um, you know, the experiences you have are the experiences you have, and they help mold you. But if there was one thing I could go tell my high school self, because my mom had actually called Franz Jim, and she had of said... Of she did. I love Judy. Yeah, she called and talked to Ernie. Um, and she had said, hey, if you want to go down on Saturdays, they have a team that trains together. And I should have told my mom, yes, take me on Saturdays and let me just soak it all in. And just, I think I'm such a control freak that I didn't want to give up my control of my own routine, um, which was true even when I went there in the mid-2000s. But I should have just gone and just counted that as an extra day. I mean, I was young enough to have enough recovery, but I should have gone as a high schooler and just gone and trained as, when I could during that football season. Um, I, you know, we didn't lift uh, on Saturdays at the high school, so I easily could have gone down there and gotten some more knowledge from Ernie as a younger kid. But, yeah, I, to be fair, when I started lifting Marosher, I was at Elmhurst, and so I was probably as close to there. Um, and I think it was just less intimidating because yeah. I was intimidated to go to Franz. Yeah, with with Franz Gym, um, I still can remember, like, the first time that I walked in. And you just knew that you had to be good when you were there. I, I just um, – it felt like you could hear the Rocky theme in the background when you walked in there because, like, it had, like, this real old-school feel to it. Um as soon as you walked in, because, like, it was a big building. I think there were, yeah. like, three floors plus the basement. Yeah, there were three fl- it was an old, uh It was an old furniture store. Ironically, my parents had said they actually literally bought their furniture after they got married or bought some furniture when they were married from that building. Wow. And you had to park out back underneath, like, the railroad, railroad tracks, tracks. Or on the street. Slightly sketchy back there, but. Very sketchy. Uh, we, were, ever, we were in Aurora. <laughs> nothing ever happened. Oh, at some point, yeah, we should talk about how you had to park in the back. Um, and we were moving powerlifting meat equipment at, like, midnight. That was crazy. Um, but when you came in through the front door, um, Amy might be at the front. She was over on the left-hand side, uh, sitting behind the desk if she was working. And um, the thing that I love about Amy is that she always backed Ernie. Like, she knew. She knew that Ernie had some crazy moments, but didn't matter she always had his back, and he always had hers. And, um, you know, the two of them are really tied for me, like, in my brain. You know, they, they come together as kind of like a package deal. 
Um, he had this big bird cage um, that was at the front, and sometimes you could hear the bird. I, I forgot about the bird cage until <laughs> I wrote that down. Ernie always had a bird. I, I mean, the thing was huge, too. Um, and that whole first floor was all retail. Um, and so they did a big mail order business. I I can still see like the cabinets they were they had these glass cabinets and inside there were TP five thousand wraps and now like I mean there'd be stacks of them in there and now like what people wouldn't give to have a pair of TP five thousands I mean seriously they are the best wraps and I I still have mine to this day um, yeah the overkill are the only ones that are similar and Rudy Rosales was obviously around back then yeah they um, are they are they are very similar they're, they're very similar I don't think they're quite the same in no, my opinion they're I, different I don't think they. They're actually a little stretchier. I don't think they're quite as stiff as the old TP5000. It's my opinion. Yeah. Um, he had clothing racks that were full of all kinds of things, including denim bench shirts, which – have you seen a denim bench shirt in a meet in a while? Uh, I think I saw one relatively recently, and I made a comment to the guy like, wow, you're really going old school there. But, yeah. But basically no one wears denim anymore. Uh, but that was like a big thing when well, it, when it, we first started. I remember, and like it was a big deal. Like Shara, uh, like we were training partners. Shara Powell was our training partner. I'll go into that a little bit. But the, the three of us trained at Franz together quite a bit. And she had one of those denim men shirts, and you had to like spray it down with water so that the yes. seams would give a little bit. As and, did I. I had a denim men shirt with, um, and mine eventually got like uh, a piece of seatbelt material sewn into the collar. It's crazy what he would try sewing things in. Uh, I mean, yeah. because I, I think, because um, I remember with Shara, Shara had um, a pair of briefs from him. They were Franz briefs. And with Ernie's briefs, you got to pick which side was the front and the back. But once you picked that, you needed to keep going with that. Um, and Shara happened to find um, briefs that she got from him, and one side was bright red, and the other side was blue. And Which was pretty unique, actually. Yeah. Um, Most of the time, you just got navy blue, which I had a pair, you had a pair mm -hmm. of, and then black, obviously. Mm -hmm. And you could sometimes get those altered. It was always safe to, like, alter them in, but not necessarily out. That was kind of a bad thing. But I remember he put... Um, not the seatbelt material. He took TP5000 and put it in the bottom of canvas suits. Yeah, the bottom. Well, yeah, because the, the story is the canvas squat suits. Um, and Ernie was almost definitely the first one to use canvas for squat suits. We've, I think we've talked about this before, but he went down to, like, wherever he bought his material. And he said, what's the strongest material you have? And the guy was like, well, I've got this canvas that I use for, for, boat, for boats. I don't know, I guess for, like, uh, sails or mm -hmm. I don't know. But uh, so he said, okay, I'll take some of that. And he made it into a squat suit. And that's kind of where, uh, you know, I, I think that was the first one that you had to use Velcro straps because the material is so stiff that you couldn't use the old school strap that just to be pulled up on your shoulders. But yes, he added a sideways pair of TP5000 knee wraps in the crotch because the crotches were blowing out of all the suits. He also added like a piece of denim on the side of the squat suits and a triangle mm -hmm. because, again, the sides were blowing out. So that added a little bit of extra to it. So they were very, very unique. And they always did with the canvas. They were always, they always, yeah, they were always custom. It was really nice. Like, I don't even know nowadays if you were able to get your hands on one of these canvas suits, where would you get it customized? I mean. I think Jenny still makes canvas okay. squat suits um i mean the og leviathans are still custom from inzer but other than that uh you know inzer makes the leviathan ultra pro which is lace up 
um, which was actually a front designed originally. Um, and then you've got uh, metal that sell for as long as they're around um, sells, but that's stock sizes. I don't think because Titan does definitely does not sell a canvas. So, I mean, when you think about the fact that you had this whole store, people would come from really far away just to check out the, the store. store. I mean. If you talk to Amy Jackson, um, and Amy Jackson is someone I would, we're going to have on the podcast eventually um, because she would be an excellent person to talk to about Ernie and just tell the story of her as kind of the, the, the behind-the-scenes engine that runs the APF. Um, but according to Amy, when they were at their peak, the mail order business was the business driver of Franz Jim. Everything else was just secondary. I mean, she said that Jim basically broke even. Um, he didn't do any training or anything like that. He never charged for his coaching, for one thing. No. I mean, it's not like now where you got these online coaches. I mean, Ernie, if you came and showed up, Ernie would coach you. If you yeah. showed up on Saturday, mm-hmm. Saturday afternoon or Saturday mornings, Ernie would give you his attention. He would help you as much as you needed. He never charged anybody a dime for his coaching. Now, he would ask you to buy gear, and he would tell you not to wear other people's gear. <laughs> Definitely. We'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he would obviously ask you to be a member of the gym, and eventually he would tell you to you know, enter APF meets, which would help him, and then eventually usually people would help at his meets as well. So there, there was some give and take there. Um, but there but were it, sliding scales for all of those things too. Like, I mean, I remember he worked – really well with a lot of different people and like he was very big into loyalty um definitely and building people up which is outstanding so on this first floor though had all these different kinds of things he also had like uh they were socks with the stirrups painted on them Uh. i mean it it was crazy because most of the stuff he sold was actually custom but he had literally racks and racks and racks of Stuff they'd already made, like just mm-hmm. in case someone came in and needed a stock size. Mm-hmm. It was very strange. Um, it, you know, he was doing more of a custom business, but he had stock of all this stuff. He also was making his own ammonia. Like, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, we talked about that with Crackhead Bobby that was apparently making on the third floor. Well, the story is from Ernie, at least. Again, I always take stories with Ernie with a grain of salt, and I, most of them are probably true, but it, how quote true they are is a little different. But According to him, he was buying them from Ricky Del Crane, but then Crane started charging him shipping and handling, which pissed Ernie off. Of course it did. So then Ernie started just making his own. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you put all these things together in one room, he, he sold chalk in there. He sold... Protein powder. He, he sold just about everything that he could. Yeah, because there was, there was some interesting things on that first floor, too. But... Uh, like, there's nothing that really can describe the smell of the place. Like, when you walked in, I don't know. Again, it goes back to that, like, old school kind of thing. Kind of like when you would walk into your grandma's house, and grandma's house has that smell, too. But, um, it, you know, it's not bad. It just feels like another home. And so that's kind of, like, how you treated it. it you know, kind of a mix of china gel, uh, <laughs> baby powder, chalk, uh-huh. and a little bit of sweat mixed in there uh-huh. was the smell there. Uh-huh. Um, you know, so descri- so I'm describing the building. You walk in, as Jackie said, the first floor was retail, and that was all it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and off to the left was the, the desk and all the, the stuff he could buy. And he had shelves, and it was kind of like a, a made-up hallway um, because the shelves weren't, like, it wasn't a wall. It was just very high shelves, you know, probably six-foot shelves. ceilings sh- in there were pretty high, probably yes. because it was a furniture store. Yeah, so that first floor is probably, like, originally, like, the, a showroom floor for the furniture um, and then off to the right, there were stairs that went down to the basement. And that was really the, 
the nerve center from a powerlifting perspective. Mm -hmm. That's where the team trained. Um, there was two to three monoliths down there. There was three to four benches. There was three deadlift platforms. There was maybe like a, a faux power rack that he had bolted into the, the wall um, that some of the kids would use. But mostly it was just monoliths, benches, deadlift platforms, and a lot of weight. There was no machines in the basement. Um, it was not a huge area. It wasn't small, but it wasn't big. There was no. plenty of space. There were some benches behind the monoliths to wrap your knees. Um, but there wasn't a lot of extra seating besides no. that kind of bench. Yeah, you weren't really sitting. Those benches. Um, not like here where we have seats everywhere and little tables everywhere for people. Yeah. Um, it there had was an exposed stone wall in the back and um, painted versions of Ernie doing squat bench and deadlift. I think his son probably painted yes, that. Yes, who, who is an artist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, also in that basement... Uh, there were doors to a back room. Um, the back room was where you went to put on your gear, like especially if you were a little bit more modest. Yeah, uh, the females would use that, and eventually became like a spare room for homeless dudes that were staying at Ernie's gym. Yeah, um, and they had like those old school jiggle your fat machines. Yeah, and circus. The, the circus, circus dumbbells. dumbbells and so it was like the graveyard of old <laughs> powerlifting and fitness equipment because there was the room and there was a crawl space mm -hmm. that actually was shared by the two buildings because I'm told at one point those buildings were connected. I'm not 100% sure about this, um, but the, the crawl space was joined and Ernie had all kinds of crazy stuff underneath there, like you said, like that juggle your fat machine. Um, the second floor was like your old school machine. So think like pumping iron um, style machines that like Arnold was using and then some random Ernie creations of like stuff he just put together. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you go up even one more floor, um, I don't suggest taking the elevator because it worked probably about 50% of the time. But up on the third floor is where he had his meets. Uh, I think at one point he had a boxing ring put in. He did. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, much later he transformed it into <laughs> Crackhead Bobby's room. Um, and I think he was living there with his whole family. Yeah, that was at the very end. Um, um, but prior to that, they ran meets up there. Um, had a really interesting monolith from a meat director's perspective because it had these weight trees on the side where the weight trees would turn so that way you mm -hmm. could get to all the different weights, um, which I thought was pretty impressive. And I want to say that it was, was it raised? I want to say it there was wasn't, raised. Yeah, there was an elevated platform. Um, it was a huge monolith. It was, a, it was the first front opening monolith. It was made for 2,000 worlds. Um, it had built-in lights into the top of the monolith. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I it had built-in lights mm -hmm. um, and, you know, a spot where you could pop a bench into the platform and then it wouldn't move. So it was a really innovative monolith. And it, it got apart for a while. And then uh, in 2005, he took it out. I think I and Maris and Amy suggested he just – because at that time, he was always going out to run his meets. And we said, why don't you just run the meet at the gym here? Because he had done that in 2000 when I had done my first meet. And so – Kind of a couple of years later, I don't know if it was in storage or what, but he took out that model and put it back together. It was a monstrosity, but very unique. Um, and that's where he ran meets for a couple of years there until, you know, again, it turned into more of a flop house again. Yeah, so my memories of meeting him were definitely like the first workout that we went there for. And I remember walking down the stairs. The great part about going there was that I had Shara with me, um, and so I didn't have to do it alone um, because 
Maris would come every once in a while. Um, she got more consistent, especially when Eric Stone was getting on her about being more consistent. <laughs> That's funny. I don't um, even remember that. But um, and Sydney would come. Um, Sydney was pretty consistent Sydney as Toms. far as um, benching. But having Shara there was really important. This is, um, and I remember. Well, I remember with Ernie, he kind of gives off this vibe of like, kind of like Grandmaster Yoda, because he's like not a. At that time, he wasn't big in stature. I know earlier in his life, especially when he was like on. Um, the well, pictures. he was always on. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, just a matter of how much. <laughs> um, Go back to our PED episode. <laughs> this is true, and then he could also tell you about how things work after you're on. And <laughs> yikes. <laughs> We won't go there. Um, but he definitely gave off this Grandmaster Yoda vibe because, like, you had people like Jose Garcia over on the Big Rack, and, like, Jose is an impressive, impressively sized man. Like, he's not huge around, but he's, like, tall and Yeah, probably and close well to six built. feet. Yeah, and so you have, like, him and Noel Garcia and, like, I mean, big dudes down there, and then there's, you know, this little... Not little, because he would not want to be called little. You don't call guys little. Yeah, shorter guy. I mean, he was like my height by that time. He had shrunk a little bit. But, you know, he walked around and, like, you know, would kick the machine every once in a while or whatever. um, And people listened to him. And, um, and, you know, he just commanded this kind of respect um, that I really appreciate. He didn't have to ask for it. No, no, not at all. Everyone everyone had implicit trust in what Ernie said. I, it's interesting because I wasn't there when you guys first went to France because I was kind of half training with you guys starting to transition over. Um, I'll talk about that in a second. But, you know, what did Ernie say to you and Shara when you first started? Like, what was your, what were your interactions? Did he, did he suggest anything to you form-wise? Did he suggest weights to do? Or did you guys kind of just do your workout and... Because I, I don't know how... I mean, I don't know how Ernie was, but... When people come into our gym, or, and it's probably more so when we only had the team and not the gym, but when people used to come train with Team Stone, mm-hmm. like I, people would always be like, you know, why don't you coach him right away, Eric? And I'd be like, you know what? You got to show up more than once for me to give you my attention. <laughs> Eric. Because if you show well, I mean, because to be fair, like, I'm not going to put a bunch of time and effort in somebody if they're just going to come do a workout once and leave. And we have a little bit different setup now in 2XL where a lot of times when people start, I will actually personal train them a couple of times and write them a program, which I think is probably a little bit better uh, method. But, you know, how did Ernie interact with you guys when you started? He, well, Ernie always loves the ladies. Um, and 100%. so, I mean, he was always. And there weren't a lot of females. No, it was the four of us. That was it. Whenever we would be there. And um, the four of you being you, Shara Powell, Maris Sternberg, famous, you know, APF WPC lifter and secretary and Sydney Toms, um, our friend who was a very big bencher. Tanya came out. Um, yeah, Tanya Bruton, who we'll talk about. But, yeah, she came out some at that time. Yeah, um, and, and that was about it. Um, and he was always really good about coaching you to do just a little bit more. Um, and so, you know, at that time, I think I was doing this Russian program that was all based on percentages. And, you know, Marosher thought it was so awesome that I used Excel, which at the time was like, ooh, Excel. Um, now it feels so commonplace. Um, so were you guys doing reps? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Lo- lots of reps. Uh, how, um, what did Ernie think about those reps? Um, oh, except for, I should say, the assistance work that we did was more reps. Um, benching, benching, we did more reps. 
the squatting pretty much I had only done one rep max kind of we didn't max out every week. I don't want to say it like that, but but you did progr- a lot of singles. It was yeah, it was heavy singles. Very ah, so Ernie liked that. Yeah, it, that was very much his way. Yeah, because like I remember when you came to Marosher, and you know, at that point, I think I had been working out with Marosher for about at least a year, if not two years. Yeah. And you came in, and you were like, "I want the racks out," and we were like, "They don't go out," and you're like, "Yes, they do," and you were like showing us how to do it, and it was just like. I had no idea they went out um, until that point. And I had learned how to squat with them in. I, I'm trying to remember when I switched to them being out, actually. It was training at Franz. Yeah, because, like, yeah. Because you're not tight in the shoulders. But, yeah, at Marocher, because everybody else did it. it's a lot of big dudes, and they all just had the racks in. And I, like, that's where I put my hands was basically right on the rings. And mm-hmm. so I was like, oh, can I get these out? And everyone kind of looked at me like I had three heads. I think because of that, though, it's made me a better spotter. Um, because once you've flipped a bar in a monolift, you don't do that again. Um, and so I think because of that, I'm much more conscious about some of those things. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, my first experience was, you know, walking into Franz and like, it's so interesting. Like I didn't have the same trepidation as far as like walking in there. Um, it felt comfortable from the beginning and maybe it's because of the old school vibe because like I remember going to other places and being um, a lot more concerned about how I would be received. So you guys were received pretty well. They kind of said, hey, go over here to this rack. And because when I started, you guys already kind of had your routine set. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this is just where we go. And mm-hmm. we'll talk about kind of the setup there. But yeah, they were just like, hey, head over here with Maris. And did Maris kind of lead you guys or was she not always there? She was pretty good about coming. She was pretty good. She would always um, definitely attract. She would always go right to other females, definitely. Maris Sternberg. Yeah, and she was always really accepting of, like, because, like, some, I don't know. There, there's sometimes, especially back in the day, where, like, if, because I think you're one female in a gym, you kind of act in a certain way that's not necessarily all that welcoming to other females because you're used to being... The only one. And Maris wasn't like that. Like, no. she was just excited to have other females around. Definitely. Well, and that's something that we can talk about is that I think before Maris, there were no other females at Franz. And I think because of Maris. Diane. Well, no, I don't think Diane didn't start until after Maris started. True. So I think because Maris got accepted, then, you know, Ernie's wife said, well, if you're training one female, why can't I train? So Ernie's wife, Diane, then trained with Maris for many years. Um, and then I kind of opened the door because I think before Maris, Ernie didn't have any females on his team, um, but it fit in with Ernie's philosophy of being open and accepting of everybody. Yeah. And why I've always kind of had the philosophy with us that, you know, sometimes it seems like we attract the misfits on Team Stone um, through the years. And I think that comes back to the philosophy of Ernie of, you know, being open to everybody, that everyone has something to give and everybody has value. And... He would accept males, females, young, old. I mean, we had a lot of masters lifters, but we also had teenagers. We had some big lifters, but, you know, there was kind of everyone between, and that, that was kind of the philosophy there. Is that if you came and you showed up, if you spotted and you loaded and you worked hard, people would help you. If you learned how to wrap knees, if you learned how to sell, help set straps, if you learned how to work the monolift, you were accepted. It didn't really matter what you lifted. Yeah, and and everybody helped out. Like yeah, definitely. There, it there was, weren't. 
I've seen much more problems in other places than people what weren't, I saw there. Well, there was no cell phones, but people weren't True. people weren't like sitting around shooting the shit. Like when it was time to train, everybody was around the monolift. And we kept loading the bar, and people kept going. And the only downtime would be if somebody was wrapping their knees. Mm-hmm. Well, let me go on to to my next kind of experience with uh, Franz is that. We'll fast forward a little bit. Fall 2003, um, due to hip issues and maybe not being as successful as I, I wanted to, I decided to quit football. I got invited to an AAU invitational meet at the Olympic Training Center. Um, and so I decided to quit football, and I knew that at that time I really needed somewhere to train, not just on my own. Um, so I started training with the Marosher team, um, which at the time was down at Richie's High School, where Jackie uh, graduated from and where at the time she was a teacher and uh, that's where me, we met um, and I trained with you guys just for like a couple last heavy squat workouts going back to earlier in 2003 um, the 2003 AAPF Nationals were at Rich East and I had kind of met you guys through the internet of Amy Bear was on some of the message boards Amy. And that, Al. Yeah, I didn't know. Al, I knew a little bit, but Amy was the one that was on some of the message boards I frequented. And I knew that, you know, they were relatively close to where I was. And so, you know, I had started training there uh, just on occasion. Um, at that time, when I when I then decided to train with you guys more full time, Marosher, I don't know, that must have been, had he already moved up north in 2003? Or was he, he, or it, was he in the process of it? There was like this weird transition year so i'm not exactly sure about dates um because i remember he got the new job up north but he left his equipment down for a while at rich east for at least six months if not a year yeah i wonder um, i wonder if that was the year he started up at libertyville 2000 mm-hmm. fall 2003 um but i definitely remember training with all you guys for a while mm-hmm. so maybe it was later because you know it, you would know administrators don't always have to move at the school year, it's plausible that they could have moved like, you know, mid mid school years. Not maybe possible. not as common. I don't I don't think. But I think it was at the end. But that's okay. Doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, what was left of the Franz team you mentioned, um, because by the end it was basically just you, myself, and then Shara Powell that were left. Because after Marosher left, you know, some of the big guys stopped training there, um, and so we started squatting at Franz on Saturdays. Um, now we would still at that time bench together and deadlift together for a while Mm -hmm. um but we were squatting at franz um i wore a franz shirt to the aau invitational which was november 2003 and i bombed on depth my first and first bomb at that time um my dad was pissed i got red lighted in the front uh from uh the head judge and I got red lighted all three times from Ricky Dale Crane's dad, who I don't think threw a white almost the entire meet. Wow. Actually, then USPF meet director and future USPA president Steve Dennison was one of the other referees, gave me a white at least on my second two. Um, but nonetheless, I continued to train at Franz. And, and like I said, I was kind of afraid to go to Franz because I'm kind of a control freak when it comes to my training. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't really sure how things worked at Franz. In retrospect, I should have been more open to just letting, listening to Ernie. Um, and just to give some context of, of how my training was transformed there. So I missed 556 at the 2003 AAPF Nationals. I think I got, I didn't write this down, but let's say I got somewhere in the 530 range. So 530 squat, 
uh, spring 2003. By spring 2005, two years later, I was at a 650 squat. Same body weight, and that was at the 2005 Illinois State Meet. Um, and that was when I was training at Franz very regularly, and that was probably the last meet I really – I think I might have done Worlds that year as well, um, where I was consistently training at Franz. Um, in fall of 2005, I started student teaching. I was in college at the time, um, and I started at the same time also working at Velocity um, on Saturdays, kind of as a part-time job while I student taught, even though I wasn't supposed to do that. And so that fall, I just, you know, because the Franz team trained on Saturdays and that was my opportunity to work, um, I had to stop training there. And that was kind of the last, that was my run, was basically, you know, a little bit with Marosher, fall 2003, and it was probably around that later 2003, because I definitely remember squatting at Franz prior to that AAU meet. So it was fall, winter 2003, up through about the end of the summer 2005 that we, you and I, and Shar really consistently trained at Franz. So a pretty good two-year run. And we would go back, I should mention, that you know, after even we moved on to our own team, um, there would be times when we just wouldn't have enough people, and I would take the day off of work on a Saturday, and we would go squat at Franz on a Saturday. So we continued to kind of be involved with them. Yeah, and in that same year, um, Shar and I went out to do AWPC Worlds in Saco, Maine, that's where I got to meet the Russ Barlow. He was a very interesting man. I love how when we went out there, um, he introduced us to um, the warm-up room and said, these ladies are going to you know, come and lift back here, and you're going to you know, give them space on the monolift. And it was really awesome. And I can't do his accent any kind of justice, so yeah, I he's, won't. He's got a very, <laughs> oh, a very distinct Maine-ish accent. It's super thick, and I love it because I can hear it in my head. I just can't do it. Um, but... You know, he introduced us and made sure that, you know, we were taken care of when we were out there. Um, and after that point, I think after that gym or after that meet, um, we started lifting. Very um, consistently at Franz. Yeah, consistently at Franz. When you went down and trained at Franz, um, there were two to three monoliths. I can't remember if the third one in the middle was always there. There were always the two. I know that there were always yeah, the two. Yeah, there was always the two. There was a, not, there was a, a time when there was another one that he sold, and then there was the, the like what Barzine would later call the Terminator monolith that was like, <laughs> like basically like it's hard to describe, but it was like all hydraulic and a, like electronic hydraulic. Like there was like a little engine that he would turn on it. It was, <laughs> and like, add gas to it, I think. <laughs> I don't, it's hard to describe, but like everything worked on automatic hydraulics. Like there wasn't a pump. Like you just pushed a lever and the monolith would go up and down. The racks would go in and out and they had rollers on them. And the rack would go like push out and in all from the hydraulic levers. Yeah, there were three different things that you could do for it because yeah. there were a bunch of switches over on the side. Um, and I remember Ernie had, you know, sitting on the side while Eric was taking a squat once. Um, he was sipping on his coffee. Which had a little more than coffee in it. Yeah, and, you know, he Eric stood up with the bar, and, you know, it took a really long time for the racks to it was go like, out. And, of course, Eric was doing, you know, what Eric does, which is like a million reps, which is unheard of there. In the meantime, Ernie didn't like how slow it was going, so he, you know, Jimmy rigged it a little bit Tightened more. Tightened up a knob. And then, you know, 
Eric's done and he says rack and all of a sudden like these racks slam into him and because it went so fast. Damn near knocked me over. <laughs> it was oh but it was <laughs> most of the time we stuck on the two there was two original monolith brand monoliths. Yeah. And on the heavy rack, um you didn't even start with the bar on the heavy rack. Like, plate was the bar. Like, I know that, you know, after that point, they just started adding hundreds. And it felt like the plate was just, like, permanently attached to the bar. That's how it, you know, it always started with the plate on that side. Yeah, they would take a bar, but then from there, like, without even, like, doing an order, they would throw a plate on. A plate was like a bar. And then it was throw on a set. This was the heavy rack. And basically, you had to squat over 700 to be on this rack. So I squatted on that rack maybe once or twice in my entire time training there. But it was like everyone would kind of take a bar, then put their briefs on, take a plate, and then they would go one set of hundreds, two set of hundreds, three set of hundreds. Then they would start loading by plates like we normally would do. That rack was a smaller number of people, like maybe five to eight people max on that one. It would, that would be your Jose Garcias. That would be your... Uh, Jason Patrick's, that would be your Noel Garcia or Noel Lavarios, that would be your Kevin Thomas's, all guys that squatted nine nine hundred to a thousand pounds on a fairly regular basis. And over on the light rack, you had, um, you know, still just as strong people, but uh, we definitely didn't go as heavy with the weights. But I remember uh, lifting with Tony Luna, and like I remember ernie messing with his form to the point where tony was almost doing like a plie underneath the squat bar it was crazy um but uh we were over on the light rack um sometimes would have like uh, a ton of people and everybody else went on the light rack basically if you weren't a 700 pound squatter it was teenagers women and masters yeah and lightweights um Common at Morocher's gym was having the order up on the board, especially, especially for, for deadlifts. And well, I would say, well, but well, yeah, for squats too, because we would even go as far as like putting your workout on the board because we were at the high school and you, we had like a big, like regular size marker board. So not only did it have like your rack height on it, but it also had your weights and like, yeah, I mean, Marosha was even more in depth because actually you would, you didn't just write the order on the marker board. Like we still do. And we did at Franz, but at Marosha would actually write your entire workout. And then mm-hmm. based on what you wrote your workout, then Marosha would develop the order based on who had like the heaviest and lightest, you know, working sets. And but, it kind of like went, Almost like a meat does where the bar doesn't go back down until it's the next person set. Right. And when you and I, and I think it was me because you and Shara were probably, I don't want to say you're more passive, but I was probably a little bit more proactive. And I was like, hey, how about, can we put an order on this marker board you have on the wall here? And you would, again, you would have thought people thought we had three heads. Well, because you and Shara were getting skipped because... They kind of just did the, oh, let me take this. Oh, let me take this. Sure, I'll take two plates. Sure, I'll take a plate. And not that you and Sharon weren't strong, but you weren't doing, you know, you weren't jumping by plates each set. Well, and I had remembered from working out with Marosher, like, and I wish that we did more of this. We had an order, and then if you were getting wrapped, you knew who was going, and you were wrapping the person behind you. Yeah. Um, And it's one of, like, my irks when people start rapping like when they're supposed to be lifting and i really want you to wrap maybe even two lifters out right so you're ready to go once the bar is loaded yeah um but yeah i mean it the, the light rack had a lot of people that's why that one day i jumped over to the crazy 
electronic hydraulic rack because we had so many people on there that I just decided, hey, you know, can can we use this middle rack? At the end of the day, it was probably better for us to stay on the light rack, but um, it was interesting. Um, you know, the, the training style there was very heavy singles. Um, that's so basically you, what you, you did, heavy geared singles. And you, you saw a lot of great lifts. It's kind of almost ruined me for other people because now, you know, somebody comes in and squats 500 and, you know, if, I, I can't squat 500. But when somebody comes in and squats 500, yeah, I've seen that. I've seen a lot of other things. And so, like, you know, but I will say this. You still spot it the same. You still spot every weight from, okay, maybe not, you know, a plate. But every weight after that as if it's the same as like a thousand pound squat because you got to be there for people and um that's one of the things that was great about there like you know everybody loaded weights and everybody helped each other out and yeah you, you rotated through working the monolift adjusting rack heights um a lot of people did squat the, the typical franz method was to do squat bench deadlift all together on saturdays in fact in the old days they did squat bench deadlift three to four times a week by the time we were there, it was more like squat bench deadlift heavy on Saturdays. Some people would come in and do bodybuilding work on Monday, Tuesdays. Wednesdays was like a little bit more deadlift focused and assistance work and back work. Um, we, Jackie, Shar, and Eric would do squat and deadlift on Saturdays. Some people would do their geared work on Saturdays. That would be squat and bench, and they would save deadlift for Wednesdays. Um, and it was kind of the start of Team Stone was that we would squat deadlift on Saturdays, and then you and I, and I think Shara had dropped off by then, started benching with Jason Visney at his high school on Sundays. Because you and I, I think at the time, were benching maybe at my college mm -hmm. on like Monday, Tuesdays. Um, sometimes you and I would go over on Wednesdays for deadlift and assistance work. But, you know, basically the, the training style there was lots of heavy geared singles. And, you know... That's not what we necessarily do now as much, and it's hard to go in gear that much, but I'll say we all got stronger. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like when they talk about what goes on at Westside is what goes on at Westside. You, you, you could train to Franz style outside of Franz, but you weren't training at Franz Gym unless you're at Franz Gym. And there was, there was something about the atmosphere mm -hmm. and the camaraderie and Ernie pushing you and then sometimes having you do extra stuff um, that just breeded – you know, heavyweights and breeded strong lifters. And it wasn't so much the training style, it was the environment. And that, you know, the training style at Franz much different than the training style at Westside, the conjugate. But they both produced very strong lifters. The common denominator was that atmosphere and, and big, heavy, strong lifters pushing each other. Well, and it made you feel like you could do it. I remember, like, you know, you would, like, talk about whatever weight you wanted, and then you'd be like, ah, why don't you do, and he would say, that, you know, something that would be like five, ten pounds more, and then say, it's just another two and a half pound plate in you, champ. What's that? That's not that, you know, and it made you feel like, okay, yeah, I'll go do that, and like, it wasn't ever, you know, wasn't afraid of it at all. It was just like, yeah, I'm going to do this, because he said I can. Yeah. So at the time, Jack, you were kind of using, you said that, like, Russian program, Mm -hmm. um, you and Shara would sometimes use like the little 1.25 pound plates. Um, oh, that got lots of that. That yeah. really wasn't something we did at Franz. In fact, even two and a half were kind of out of the realm. It was more like plates, quarters, maybe a dime, maybe a nickel, mm -hmm. and that would be you know ten five. 
I mean, I was lifting a lot less then, and so when you think percentage-wise, like sure, you kind of need that. The other thing that was really big about um, lifting there was that um, they always had the same music down there. Now, this was even worse than like when I was at Marosha's gym. At Marosha's gym, all of the workouts would have, uh, I think there were like three or four ACDC CDs that were in the CD changer. Oh, boy. And then Yeah, there was no it, streaming services. There wasn't MP3 players back in the early 2000s. No. Um, and then if you came to on Friday, we had Scrap Day on Friday, and Scrap Day was off the wall by Michael Jackson. I think that was Thursday. I, uh, okay. The days might have switched. It, it felt like so. yeah. It felt like it was the end of the week at least. So because you know Michael Jackson off the wall is kind of fun. Um, at Franz, um, the music was even less of a choice because it was a one CD player. Um, definitely no rap, no rap. Yeah, Ernie um, was was ha- was happy to have the heavy metal stuff. But no rap. It wasn't a fan of um, swearing music. I know Maris was really, really against music that had swear words in it. Yeah. Um, but then, and I can still hear it to this day, lots of disturbed. Lots and lots of bodies hitting no, no, the floor. No, no, it wasn't bodies hitting the floor. It was down with the sickness. Oh, down with the sickness, yes! I mean, I've heard that song so many times when there was heavy attempts because, like, mm-hmm. they'd start the song, and they'd only play really, like, the first, like, minute of it as the guy was getting up to go. So a lot of down with the sickness when there was heavy Jose Garcia, Nolavario, Jason Patrick squats. Well, even over on our rack, you know, like especially the teenage guys, like they yeah, love uh, that as well. Yeah, Noel's, because Noel's son, Isaac Lavario, and then mm-hmm. Noel's nephew, Tony, Tony Luna, Luna. Mm-hmm. were lifting there as well. Um, you know, when, at the time, I was basically writing my own routines. Um, I had to alter them for Franz. You know, we were basically going – Almost all singles in full gear. I kind of adopted the Marosher system of singles, which was which was Franz-based, where you'd go heavy one week, light the next. And I remember Ernie would say to me, like, oh, why are you going light this week? I'm like, Ernie, I'm like, listen. I was like, I don't have the same kind of recovery ability as some of the other lifters here or the same supplements. And then he'd laugh. <laughs> and I'd say, listen, let me just go kind of lighter one week, and I'll go heavy the next week. Um, in secret, I would take my suit off and do some reps in my briefs because you really didn't do reps there. Um, Ernie liked heavy singles. Um, definitely no bands, chains, or specialty bars. No. There was like a safety squat bar somewhere in a corner that you could use once in a while. Um, everybody would kind of make fun of me because after like three hours of squatting and deadlifting in the basement, I would jump up to the second floor and do assistance work on all the machines. Um Ernie would You're leaving always, out your basketball that you would go play too. Yeah, I would go play church basketball afterwards <laughs> as well, not included in my training, but that's the, you know the younger twenty something that you've got unlimited recoverability. Unlimited. Uh, you know, Ernie would always throw in extra stuff like heavy stand ups, heavy partials, drop downs were one of his ones that was kind of one of his favorites. It was like he he you'd think it was a heavy stand up, and then after you stood up with it and held it for five seconds, then when you weren't looking, Ernie would take the monolift hooks and he would drop it down like three, four, five, you know, heights from where it was. And then when you're trying to put it in the rack, you're like almost going into like a, like a, you know, a partial squat handling it up for a negative. Um, I think I did a, a seven fifty squat for a, a partial at one point yes, when I was there. He was just take it for a negative. Yeah, you and know, they just, just call me down, 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 down. <laughs> I'll call you up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But, you know, one of the things was is Ernie believed in heavy singles and practice how you play, but he was big into form. He was big into form first and foremost. 
And, uh, you know, he was always into, hey, uh, you know, when you're in the meet, make sure you get a light opener that you can get. And then, you know, go to moderate heavy single from there. So his philosophy all fit in together. When I first went there, I was wearing my crane gear. And if you wear crane gear or Titan gear, we just make fun of you and tell you that you really should be using that to clean his car. If you wore Inzer gear, that was a different story. You would get basically kicked out of the gym. Yeah, um, I remember him like getting legitimately like I, one I, of the few times he's been legitimately angry. Oh, he was pissed. Um, and and you can go back to our Inzer Franz episode if you want to hear all about the lawsuit. We've got a whole two-hour episode, you know, detailing that. Um, you know, in 2004, I was wearing the crane stuff, but he said, "Hey, here's a combination." canvas denim suit with a poly front that he was using that he just gave to oh, me yeah and um i used that at the 2004 aapf nationals in las vegas that was the first meet that uh you and i traveled to together and we're kind of hanging out together um you know why it had the poly front right uh for his belly I <laughs> yeah, believe. yeah yes for his belly <laughs> um eventually he just made me a new canvas suit based on that suit i really didn't have any money so, and Ernie just wanted to see me do better. So he just said, hey, I'll make you the suit and you just work it off. And so I would work some meats for him to kind of work that off. Um, you know, in my time there, I, I love to kind of sit around and just talk to Ernie and Maris and chat with them about what's going on. And so I was, at that time, I was already starting to get involved. In 2002, I had become a judge. And, you know, I was, I was trying to get involved. I had started the website, chicagopowerlifting.com. Um, Tanya Bruton, who trained with us, she also worked out at the powerhouse gym in Gurney. Um, yeah, it was Gurney. Or no, Waukegan. Excuse me. It yeah. was in Waukegan. Um, and he had, she had said, hey, the gym owner, they really like a meat run. You know, what do you think? Do you think Ernie and Maris would be interested? And so I brought the idea to Ernie and Maris, you know, being a good little 21-year-old, 20-year-old kid. And Ernie kind of just turned to me and said, ah, you know, why don't you run a meet? And he probably said it kind of one-off, um, but it, ironically, I took it to heart and said, well, if Ernie thinks I can run a meet, what the hell? Maybe, maybe I can. Um, and, and that was that suggestion right there that probably changed my life quite significantly to this day. And that if I had not become a meet director, we probably wouldn't own this gym. No, we, no. I, I probably still would have become a strength coach, but... We would not be where we were today. And I'll talk a little bit more um, about, you know, the meets and Ernie's impact on them. But it was, you know, just discussion sitting around talking with Ernie and Maris. And I brought this idea to Ernie. I thought maybe he would run a, run a meet. And in retrospect, I realized now being the meet director, like, ah, eh, I don't want to run a little, little meet at the gym. You know, he had seen me kind of get involved um, and said to me, you know, why don't you run the meet? And so I said, well if you really think I can, and of course he was willing to help me as was Maris. And that's kind of where, you know, Eric Stone, meat director, asshole, but he runs a good meat started to come from, you know? And so when I, when I started running meats, I had had the experience at that time of, you know, I started judging meats and I basically volunteered to judge at any meat in the Chicago area or even not in the Chicago area, anywhere within a three hour drive. Um, I went and helped it actually, Quite a few of Dennis Brady's meets, which were USAPL. He was the owner, still is the owner of B&W Gym, and, and ran at that time some pretty big USAPL meets, dual platform. Uh, and I, I really appreciated the efficiency of his meets. But I liked 
the lifter friendliness of Ernie's meets. Um, you know, everyone wanted to talk to Ernie at the meets. Everyone loved, you know, just interacting with the person of Ernie Franz. And so what I strive to do and, and, and would continue to try to strive to do is, is try to make our meets lifter friendly like Ernie's meets, but still try to have the efficiency and the timeliness of a Dennis Brady meet. And that's we try to continue to do. And I think at times maybe I get caught up too much in the process of it. And then, you know, as we, we go through these Ernie memories, it reminds me that at the end of the day, are people really going to have a great memory of, well, that meet got done, you know, so quick. It got done 20 minutes earlier because, you know, you did X, Y, Z. Or are they going to remember, hey, the interaction and the people at the meet were really impactful. And that, that's, that's what Ernie did well and what he probably did the best of anybody that I can think of as a, from a meet director perspective um, and something that I really strive to be more like Ernie when it comes to that regard and that the, just the way that he made everyone feel like they were important when he talked to them. Oh, um, and, and he could talk to anybody. He can talk to anybody forever and just have a conversation with them. And that's, you know, that's what made Ernie Franz Ernie Franz. Um, Westside Barbell posted on their Instagram when Ernie passed away last week and, you know, said a quote from Louie. And, and he said the same thing about Westside, but it said, before Ernie Franz, there was no Ernie Franz. And after Ernie Franz, there will be no other Ernie Franz. And there's probably no other true statement from Louis than that because nobody was like Ernie before Ernie, and there's going to be nobody exactly like Ernie after Ernie. Mm-mm. Yeah, he's definitely one of a kind. Um, and I, I, it's that personal quality. He didn't really like – actually, I, I think he pretty much hated judging meets. I know Amy didn't necessarily put him in the judge's chair, even though he could. Yeah, he, yes. He didn't want to judge because he didn't – he would rather be helping lifters rather than, you know, strictly judging them. Um, at the 2004 Summer Bash, which was up at that powerhouse gym in Waukegan, um, part of the reason that meet was successful and the reason we have continued to have success is that Ernie told the team, I didn't know this, Maris told me later, he basically told the team, hey, one of your guys is running a meet. You need to enter his meet. And it wasn't a big meet, but it was big enough for me to get my feet wet into meet directing and to at least not lose money. Didn't we have a 1,000-pound squat there? We did have a 1,000-pound <laughs> squat from Jason Patrick. But I just meant as far as numbers-wise. We had about 40 lifters. Um, I rented Ernie's equipment. I told the story a couple weeks ago about Tex helping my friend Todd Sharbert and I take the monolift apart and go through the crazy elevator that only worked about 50% of the time. Um, but even that renting of equipment was like an important yeah. step as well. How else would I have run the meet? I had no, I mean, I was 21 years old. I owned nothing. Yeah. And by renting the equipment, that's how you were able to talk me into buying equipment because you were like, okay, we've now rented his monolift. I think at that point, I think it took a couple. Two or three times. Two or three meets. And you're like, if I keep, I think he charged you about $500. He, Yeah, a little more than that. Because it, I mean, to be fair, I would use more than the monolift. Right. I, would, I would usually use a monolift, a bench bars, platform, kilo plates at that time. And eventually I started purchasing some of those items. Um, but, you know, I mean, it was basically a full meat setup. Yeah. And so after you do those rentals a couple of times and you got yourself a monolift and that's how we got that first monolift. So, you know, 
could he have given it to you for less than that? Sure. But like well, by but, doing that, it helped, you know, put other things in place so that you would purchase equipment and eventually own the gym. Yeah. I mean, yes, Ernie could have, I mean, Ernie did give me a fine deal. He, but yeah. I think at the end of the day, you, if you're given something, you don't appreciate it as much. True. And because he charged me maybe a little less than market value of somebody else, but at least he charged me, you know, charged me a fair price, but mm-hmm. it was something that he felt was was fair given the depreciation of equipment usage. Um, and, yeah, it, it did teach me the economics of running meets. Um, and Ernie was a businessman. He didn't always hold on to that money well, but he was a successful businessman in his gym and his mail-order business and, and running meets. Um, it's just afterwards spending the money <laughs> and not, not saving it as much. Mm-hmm. Um, let, let's fast forward. Another kind of interesting story was – Ernie often had disagreements after he sold the WPC to Karen Kidder. I, I think Ernie had trouble letting go of having control of the organization. Um, you know, Ernie wasn't a perfect man. He had some faults. Um, and Karen and him would have bad disagreements, which I felt if they just would sit down with each other and discuss things out, they probably could have hashed him out rather than sending emails and message board messages to each other. Um, at one point, he had this whole plan read out about he and I starting the EPF, mm-hmm. Eric's Powerlifting Federation, easily changed to Ernie's Powerlifting Federation. <laughs> I he, love the fact that he pointed out that it could go either way, you know? like <laughs> It's like, no, Ernie, I don't want to start a Powerlifting Federation. I like sticking with the APF. But it would be later in 2008 um, when he had had a disagreement with Karen and he started the AFPF, the American Friends powerlifting federation um which i did not support even though i really supported ernie i just i at that time i had to keep supporting the organization i felt matched up with the vision of what i wanted to do with meets i had taken over to the illinois state chairman in 2006 after another disagreement between maris and karen kidder Mm -hmm. and she was at the time the state chairman um and as a result though of ernie kind of taking a step back and he had he was traditionally still running the state meet um, up through 2007, in 2008, we ran our first Illinois state meet at Velocity and Willowbrook. And we would go on to run basically the state meet for many years. Um, Dick Zenzen would take it over for a few years. Um, you know, it was around, as we talked about, when we started running meets. And we weren't able to train at Franz anymore at 2005, 2006. Yes, I convinced you for the first time to buy a monolift. And we drove down to St. Louis um, and bought a monolift out of the basement from Putt Houston. It's a story all in and of itself. Um, <laughs> you know, Putt just has everything big, like giant fridge and giant tables and giant benches, five kids and a huge house. Uh, he would be another interesting person to have on the podcast because he's just such a unique character in powerlifting. Um, but the goal when we bought the monolift, my thought was, hey, I, would, I, I, I love the Franz team. My work schedule didn't allow me to train with them just because if you want to train athletes, you have to train them on Saturdays. That's just, that's just what it is. That's the schedule. But we wanted to create something similar. Not the same, but something similar with Team Stone to what we had at Franz. You know, that support, that camaraderie, that openness to anybody who's willing to help and anybody who was willing to receive help. Um, you know, and fast-forwarding it a little bit more, Ernie continued to have an influence on us. 
even when we started 2XL powerlifting, um, you and Howard put together a deadlift clinic Ernie, which I believe Howard recorded and at one point was even available on our website. Um, and that was kind of the kickoff event for 2XL and our grand opening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of ways that um, knowing Ernie has had influence on both of our lives. Um, and like things that I'll take away from, you know, knowing him. Um, so for instance, we went to a meet um, that was in Michigan. And I believe this was your second meet. Yeah, and uh, I remember we were watching the squats, um, and there were lots of really bad squats, lots of knees coming in, lots of scary things, taking the bar, falling with the bar. It was just bad um, to the point where, like, you had told me, okay, don't even watch this anymore. You made me, like, physically turn away from the platform. Um, and I did pretty well at that meet, and – um, but at the end, another lifter came up and said, you know, you've really got great form and you must be a Franz lifter. And that really like had an impact on me. I didn't realize that there was such a thing as like a Franz form. Um, that was at that time more high bar, upright, mm -hmm. wide stance, knees out, like your classic Jose Garcia squat form. He's the prototype of the Franz squat form. Yeah. And um it was because of that that it made me really conscious about always representing, you know, Ernie and the gym well wherever we went. You know, like, it's really important. Like, you never know, like, who, you know, you're going to impact because they didn't know And who's me. watching you. Yeah. Yeah. Totally crazy. Um, and another thing that I, like, really love about Ernie is that he always gave his all to whomever was around. Like... He, like, loved an underdog um, and building people up and trying to find people where they're at and, you know, just teach them and help them be better. And that's part of, like, my philosophy about powerlifting in general. It's all about, like, what you can do, like, to build yourself up and make yourself better. It doesn't matter that, you know, you might not be number one in the world, um, but you can be number one for yourself. Um, it, he, like, really believed in, like, building up people that were in the prison system. Um, he even ran meets in the prison. Um, and, you know, people that, like, other people in the world, they want to shame them. He not necessarily wrapped his arms around them, but he tried to build them up and, like, what? make them the best that they well, could be. Well, remember, who is the guy that we had a lot of our first meets? Um, black guy that spotted and loaded a lot of our meets. I can't remember his name. But he was a... He was definitely an ex-con, and he was training with us at Franz Gym, but he always came to our meets and spotted and loaded at the time. I, I, I believe he probably had some issues with drugs prior to, and I don't say any of these things to be denigrating to him because he was a great guy, and powerlifting, at least for a time, was a great outlet to him, and that was kind of the prototype of, you know, the type of person that Ernie liked to help. And we on the podcast, Ben and I have joked about you know, the flop house that Franz Jim became at the end and how he hired, you know, ex-cons and alcoholics to work his gym and how he had electricians doing plumbing and plumbers doing elect electrical. But at the same time, he had a soft spot for people that had struggled in their life. And he, he gave them extra second chances, second, third, fourth chances, because I think he believed at the end that there is innate value in everyone mm -hmm. and that sometimes people just need an opportunity and an outlet in which to build themselves. And I think that's what he saw powerlifting as was your opportunity to build yourself and 
have something to focus on if, I mean, there's a reason somebody becomes an alcoholic. You don't just become an alcoholic just because you like getting drunk, even though maybe that's part of it, but there's something underlying underneath there. There's something likely in your emotional, social, psychological makeup that you're struggling with and that you are self-medicating or that you are dealing with through drugs or alcohol. And I think Ernie realized that because he had some of that in his family and that I think he saw powerlifting and his gym, both working there and working out there as the place in which he could possibly help people. And I remember him telling me a couple of times that, well, I know that nine out of 10 of them are probably going to steal from me and they're probably going to be out of here. But he said, if one out of the 10, I can help, then it was worth it to me. And, you know, I, I can't argue with that because if that is what he saw as part of his lot in life. And, you know, how many dozens of people probably went through Franz's gym in that situation? I mean, there's hundreds of people that went through his gym in general, but how many people did he help just through his, as you said, helping people that the rest of the world were ashamed of, that wouldn't touch, that even other gyms said, I don't want to, somebody was an ex-con, I don't want him in our gym. Although, uh, to be fair, powerlifting is probably a sport that, uh, is more open to ex-cons and drug addicts than others. True, but, like, I mean, he also treated the same people with that same kind of respect. Like, you know, you had 40-year-old super heavyweight woman who was benching crazy amounts of weight, and, like, he always encouraged her to, like, go out and, like, even if she didn't want to, come and squat and deadlift with us. And well, like, he actually told Sydney he, she couldn't – she wanted to bench. He told Sydney, you cannot train with us unless you do all three. Mm-hmm. And she'd have knee surgeries and issues from swimming in the past. And he built her up and went to a world championship in South Africa mm-hmm. um, and was fairly successful for a number of years in full power as a master's female lifter. Um, eventually, she moved just to be- back just to bench only. But er- that was what Ernie was about, was building people up. And he even saw that in teenagers. I mean, uh, I know that we make light of, like, our minion crew here, but, like, um, at a lot of places, they're not necessarily all that welcoming to teenagers. And like, he was always like looking out for anybody that was there. And he was always all about like making, you know, you be the best that you could be, especially in powerlifting. Didn't matter whether this was your first meet ever, if you were coming back from an injury, if this is going to be your last meet ever, it didn't matter. He always was there to help. And I really had appreciation for that. Um, and then, the words of advice for him um, that he gave me once were, I was asking about deadlift. I hate deadlift. Like, but um, he was really good at deadlifting. And um, he told me, you know, deadlift a little bit every day, which sounds crazy. Um, but I think that it's true. Like, if you're going to get better at something, you got to do a little bit of it every day um, and, you know, feed into that. And it's really important. And that's definitely um something that like I think about how can I work on my health a little bit every day and how can I you know the things that you're really passionate about the things that you want to get better at you got to give it a little bit every single day what about you um there's I would as I thought about this is there's definitely three you know major takeaways from my my time with Ernie um the first was and I've kind of touched on this was just the way Ernie interacted with people when you, even in the later years, you would see a line of people waiting to talk to Ernie, and like you just try to get a word in edgewise. And I would always try to make a point, even though I was often helping with the meter, judging, or announcing. I would 
always make it a point to go over and at least say hi to Ernie and tell him it was great to see him there when he was able to make it to meets. Um, he always made you feel important when he talked to you. Um, it was never about him. It was about you when he talked to you. Um, he always gave the advice that he thought you needed. Not necessarily the advice even that you asked for always, but he saw things in you that you often didn't see in yourself. Um, he loved to tell stories, which I love hearing stories. I guess I love telling stories now too, but I would just sit for hours afterwards on Saturdays and just listen to Ernie and Maris tell stories. Maris was big on telling stories as well, um, but so was Ernie. They, they would kind of go back and forth. Um, but I would, I would love to be half of the people person that Ernie Franz was. Um, I, I try to do my best. I'm not Ernie Franz. I don't have that just innate magnetism and charisma with people that he has. Um, but that's something I would strive to be more like. Um, the second is just the, the way in which he coached his lifters. He always pushed his lifters to be their best. And he pushed them to be the best if he felt they had that potential. Um, he often saw more in lifters than they saw in themselves. I mean, he saw more in me. He said, you know, when I was squatting 500, he said, you really should be squatting 600, and then you should be shooting for 700. And it was like, whoa, like, that's a huge jumper. And he said, no, you know, that's where you need to be. Um, and he was right. Mm -hmm. um, he would, would kind of do it in a sly way like that, where he would, he would just add on, like, little future goals. He'd say, like, you know, in another year, you need to be doing X. And, hey, you know, if you really want to be the best – you need to be working on why, gaining weight, or adding something to your repertoire. Um, but he wasn't – one of the major differences, I would say, between Franz and Westside, outside of the training styles, which were very different, and, and I'm not saying either right is right or wrong, but Westside has been and was designed for elite lifters mostly. Basically, Louie wanted to train you if he thought you could break, the record, break a record on the record board. Ernie was just as happy to train a novice lifter as he was a big lifter. And don't get me wrong, he had many, many great big lifters through the years. You know, guys like we talked about, Jose Garcia and Noel Lavario and Jason Patrick and Kevin Thomas, and even going back before then, you know, Maris Sternberg in her prime and his wife Diane, himself, Bill Nichols, Bill Busby, uh, Willie Wessels. You know, there's been tons of of world record breaking world champion lifters that have lifted through his gym but he was just as happy to train a novice lifter and a teenager or a new masters lifter um the way he was able to tell you something without directly telling you it's like he was able to just kind of sneak in there the way he wanted you to do things um and again i i would strive to be the type of coach he was from the mental perspective. It's one thing to be able to write things on a sheet of paper and to give people a routine and to give people advice. It's another to have that mental psychological aspect of where you're able to, to sneak in those little extra things. Is like, well, really in a year, you know, you should be doing this. And it's kind of like, you wouldn't even know how to react when he would say those things because it, it would be something you'd never thought of yourself. And it would kind of sit in the back of your mind and you would chew on it. Um, and that's the type of things that he was able to do with his foresight and his experience and his knowledge that 
I think another coach couldn't if all they're doing is focusing on RP and percentages. Um, and the third is that the way he ran the APF and WPC, um, Bain and I have got a future episode now um, planned where we're going to talk about why we have continued to support the APF. And I think it fits in well with this episode and with Ernie Franz. But, you know, I think he started it as an honest organization. Um, last week we talked about PED use. Let's be honest. I mean, people use PEDs in powerlifting. And Ernie was honest. And he, in one of our previous episodes, we talked about how, you know, he said, hey, I mean, if the USPF is going to drug test, I don't think I should be lifting there. I don't think it's right because I use anabolics. And he didn't think there was anything wrong with it. And, but he did feel there was something wrong with trying to go around a drug test. And so he started the APF for somebody who said, hey, I just want a platform in which I don't have to skirt around the rules. Um, he ran the organization as a lifters organization. He wanted it to be a credible organization, an international organization, an organization that attracted, like his gym, both big lifters and, you know, masters, teens, juniors, and novices. Um, and he always looked to innovate. Um, that's something that I try to think about with our meets is, you know, what can we do next to make the meets better? How can we better use technology or improve little things on the, the experience of the meet? Um, Ernie was one of the first ones with the APF to adopt the monolift. Um, we talked about that 2000 WPC Worlds monolift. Um, at that same meet, he had a giant dry erase board which had some kind of like rotating, like clear plastic that you could, you know, almost like what are those things that teachers used to use a overhead projector, mm -hmm. kind of that that he had that you could rotate through. And it was basically a giant scoreboard for me because he saw the need that people should be able to see who is actually what a, without going to the table, who's lifted what. Um, even back in those days, he had like a flip chart for what the actual weight was in pounds and kilos in the bar for the audience. And obviously the technology that we have now was not available back then. He was trying to do the things that we had, you know, like the lights being visible to everybody. Um, like, you know, seeing a scoreboard, um, like seeing what weight is on the bar. Those are the types of things he tried to do with the technology that was available to him at the time. And that's what I hope we can try to continue that tradition of the lifters organization with the APF. A credible lifters organization is something that that you and I, Jackie, and Howard have tried to continue the tradition through the past, you know, 15 years of running meets and something we will try to continue to do into the future. Um, anything else to add, Jackie, on uh, our, you know, coach, our mentor, our friend, um, the late, great Ernie Franz? Um, just that... I'm going to miss him. Uh, it was always a highlight whenever he would come to a meet, um, whether it was our meet or another meet, um, and getting to see him because um, he would always light up. Well, I'm a woman, so we would light up a little bit more, but still. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Ernie um, loved women. Yeah, but um, he was always so kind and always excited to see you, and um, I'll just miss his, you know, words of advice or even just checking in on you and – um encouragement yeah like it was just really awesome to have him around and i'm sad that we won't um i'm sad that 
um, you didn't get the opportunity to have him on the podcast because I would have loved to like hear his voice along with yours. Uh, that was actually one of the goals of the podcast when we started was to get Ernie on, and it's unfortunate that uh, due to his health and due to COVID, it just didn't happen. We hopefully do have some clips um, of Ernie that was recorded along with Howard's uh, assistant, uh, uh, Charlie Stevens. Um, and we hope to try to digitize those and maybe, maybe you know, drip out a couple of those clips of Ernie's stories in his own voice. Um, and I think Howard's going to still try to work on maybe a follow-up book to the Ten Commandments of Powerlifting. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm sad that Ernie passed. It wasn't surprising because he wasn't in the greatest of health. But at the same time, I'm, I'm happy that I got to know him. Um, I feel fortunate that I grew up in Aurora where Franz Jim was and that, you know, it's almost uh, through life, you know, is it fate or is it happenstance? Is it taking advantage of the situations that are in front of you? But I grew up in Aurora, Illinois, the same city that there was Franz Jim. And I was able to know Ernie Franz as closely as, you know, I wouldn't say almost anybody, as close as most people. And he was able to have a strong influence on my life as a coach, as a gym owner, as a meat promoter, all the things that he did um, that I hope to do, you know, even as close to as well as he did through the years. Um, it's hard to articulate the, the, the full legacy of what Ernie Franz has done in his life. And not just from the big picture things of, you know, starting the APF and, the mail order business and the gym and the coaching of lifters, but the people, I mean, the thousands of people he's impacted through his life. I mean, uh, when you would go to meets, there's people you would, that had just lifted with him for a short while or just knew him from some small piece of advice when they came to his gym or that he talked to on the phone when they called to order a canvas suit. Thousands of people that had been their lives positively affected um, by talking to or interacting with Ernie Franz. And uh, again, I, I'm, I feel blessed to have known him and to have um, gotten advice and gotten impacted by uh, the things that he has done in his life. Um, we'll probably continue to do more Ernie Franz because it's such a huge subject. I thought this would be the opportunity you and I to talk about our interactions with him and our experiences firsthand with Ernie, um, but we'd, there's a lot of interviews we'd like to do, Mr. Bain and I, um, with some of the people that were close to him. Um, you know, we've got a, a YAPF episode on the, uh, on the horizon. Um, Bain and I are working on a follow-up to our PED episode. Um, there was a, an individual who put out a survey to females who use PEDs, which I think would be a pretty interesting uh, follow-up um, to our episode last week. Um, and again, I, I hope we have some clips from Howard that we can digitize and maybe, um, I don't know that we'll be able to do it as part of this episode, but maybe in future episodes, we'll, we'll start maybe doing a little segment of, you know, a little clip of Ernie Franz, um, stories that we can include, um, Ernie's stories in his own voice. Um, with that, Miss Jackie, this is Eric Stone signing out. Strength and anger.